Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hey, Melissa, how are you doing? Hey, Lisa, I am doing all right. I wanted to mention that we're working on an episode on surviving the holidays. I know this is a really hot topic and that, you know, coming into what I call the Burr months, um, September, October, November, December, there are a lot of holidays in those months and holidays can be extremely dysregulating for our kids. And so we are asking you guys, the listeners, to give us your best tips for surviving the holidays. And we'd really love to hear your voices, the listener voices in this episode. So you can leave us your best tips at 208-741-3880. We will also include that number in the show notes. Don't worry, it doesn't ring to anywhere. No one picks up. It's literally just a listener hotline where you can leave us a message. And so you can just... Um, There's instructions when you call in on how to do that, but you basically just leave your first name and your best tip, and we will be able to include that in our holiday survival episode. So we really appreciate in advance you guys being able to contribute to that. I know in the last episode, I was like, the weather's turning. It's fall. Um, It was when I said that. I promise it was, but it's like 85 degrees where I am right now. Oh my goodness. That's really warm. We've had some really sunny, beautiful days, but Today's kind of overcast and looks more like fall. That's crazy. Well, we're going to talk today about play, and I have a question for you. What did you like to play as a child? What was your favorite kind of thing to do? So I pretty much remember two things as a child. I read a ton, so and I was obsessed with any period in time where people wore long dresses, which is really funny for me to think about now because I'm not really, I don't, I don't love getting dressed up. I'm a pretty like yoga pants and a t-shirt kind of gal, but I've always loved that period, like Laura Ingalls Wilder or the Renaissance, like really just any period in time where women wore long dresses. I don't know what it was, but I just, I really was drawn to that. And I had read like the entirety of the little house in the big woods, like that whole series by the time I was like out of kindergarten and I had read it multiple times. I was just like obsessed. So to go along with that, I had a neighbor who was equally obsessed. And so we did this imaginative play where we would dress up like the characters and be them all day long. So that's what I remember most is spending long days with this girl up in a tree reading. And then if we weren't doing that, we were dressing up like the people we were reading about and pretending to be them. That sounds wonderful, actually. I had um, one sister very close to my age, like we were 16 months apart. And then our younger sister was 10 and a half years younger. So that's a whole different thing. But so Laura and I would play together a lot, but we were really different kids. And so I remember that she would want me to play Barbies with her. Well, I didn't really like Barbies, but what I did like to do was create these elaborate Barbie houses. And so we would set up these big houses in our bedroom and we would use all kinds of things to create things like Kleenex boxes for bathtubs and just all this stuff. We would create these elaborate houses and I would have so much fun and we would get it all done and it would be time to actually play Barbies. 
But by then, nah, I, I had <laughs> actually playing Barbies. And I think it drove my sister really crazy. And <laughs> it makes me laugh now to think about it. But um, we also were very, very big readers. And we spent a ton of time reading. And in the summer, our mom would take us to the library once a week. And we'd check out these massive stacks of books. And we would read and read. So anyhow, and we did play some games as well. But the building the Barbie houses just sticks out in my mind as sort of the way that different people play and different brains work. That Well, it's interesting because that's one thing that I remember specifically not being about. I was not about Barbies and I was not about baby dolls. And I had some friends that that's what they were all about. I never understood it. Like I never had like one doll that like I carried around all the time. And the things that we played were never like I was never a mom. Like those were my friends who like all they wanted to do was be moms, but I was more into playing like school or doctor or I don't know. I think you and I would have been friends. I like things like that. I love playing school and my sister taught me how to read because she was a year ahead of me in school and she would come home and anyhow. Yeah. I liked the more realistic kind of play myself when I was a kid, but play is really interesting. You know, you taught a class an online class for the Adoption Connection. One of the classes you did was on play, and I was really fascinated by the things I learned. And I was hoping you would do this as a podcast episode because I think it's really interesting to think about different types of play, how different people and different kids play, and how trauma affects the ability of the brain to play. I'm hoping you could describe to us you know, what is hard about play with some of our adopted and foster children and why is play so hard for some of them? Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, how many of us have looked at our kids and said, why can't you just go and play? Why can't you just go entertain yourself? Or why, when I send you to play, are you always doing the things you're not supposed to be doing? Um, At least those are super familiar words coming out of my mouth at my children. When I was prepping for that class over the summer, I remember researching and trying to almost answer the question for myself and coming up with some things that just solidified in my head that had never been clear to me before. So it was actually a learning experience for me too. And I remember teaching that week and just thinking, oh my gosh, where was all this information 10 years ago when we brought our toddler home? And I could not figure out for the life of me why he didn't play like other kids. Yeah, I'm excited to kind of help unlock the mystery of the lack of imaginative play. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that in particular? Yeah, so one of the things that I discovered this summer was that there are actually stages of play development. Who knew, right? But of course there would be, just like our kids develop into so many other things like language and social skills and reading, right? Everything has building blocks, kind of like before you can crawl, you have to work on your core strength as a baby's developing. And, you know, most babies crawl before they can walk. And even before they walk, they might cruise or all these things. And you can't really do one before you do the other. You kind of have to move through the stages. Same thing with like reading. Like you can't read books before you can read pages, before you can read paragraphs, before you can read words, before you can understand what letters even are and that they even make sounds, right? So there's all these different stages of different developments. And so play 
happens to have the same developmental pattern. So, you know, I think we're accustomed to thinking about the development of play when we think about babies, because they're so clearly developing new skills all the time. Like, can they pick up a block? Can they you know, clap two blocks together? Can they stack blocks on top of each other? You know, can they scoot around on a little scooter? Can they, you know, there's so many obvious developmental skills in their play. But sometime around maybe the preschool years, I think in particular, maybe even earlier, we might lose sight of that a little bit. So I think it's a really interesting thing to think about with our kids. Melissa, can you talk about the different stages of play? I think the other thing before I jump into this real quick is to remember that as our kids are experiencing trauma or periods of transition between caregivers, which their little bodies often experience as trauma, they're adjusting instead of developing. And so we were told that a child can either be adjusting or developing. And so when I think about our son and the multiple times that he changed primary caregivers, he probably spent the majority of his developmental years adjusting, not developing. That's really fascinating. I mean, just think about that. Think about the different big transitions that have happened in your kids' lives. And then I think they said, like, it can take up to six months for a body to kind of fall back into, you know, like homeostasis and then continue to develop. So just think about, and they say the same thing about, um, like, drug users that if you're abusing a substance, it actually like halts your development. So if you have um, someone who is a recovering addict who used since they were 16, even though they might be 45, their development stopped at 16 when they started using. Really interesting. When our kids, so our kids are going to have some delays because like you said, they've spent so much time adjusting rather than developing. So we might see these stages of play at later ages. Right. And it's important to remember that you have to move through all these stages to get to the end. And if you've never moved through some of the beginning ones due to either neglect or just being in a situation where these interactions with other adults were, or other children were available to you, then you could be 40 and still be in the very first stage of developing how to quote unquote play. So I just think that's really interesting to think about. I think so too. And I I would think too that if a child is living in a very chaotic environment um, with neglect or abuse and they're hyper alert and in a fearful state, that probably their play is hindered as well. Yeah. And I even think kids in institutions, even in institutions where the nannies are really great and they really do care about the kids, there's just not enough of them to go around. And so they, you don't get the amount of time that you need in these stages to complete the stage and move on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so we're kind of talking past it. Let's go back and talk about the stages of play. So play starts at a place that I think is a little counterintuitive. It's so primal. The first stage is actually attunement. This is the idea of a child and a caregiver sinking their brains through attachment, bonding, emotional regulation. It's what we do with infants when, you know, we make, when they cry and we kind of make that like sad face back at them or when our toddlers have a tantrum or really upset about something and we make that face and we say, oh, it's life is so hard, isn't it? We're kind of 
you know, almost this mirror of what they're feeling back at them, but in a way where we're not dysregulated about it, we're just mirroring it back in an attuned way. That's actually the very first stage of play. And so if we think about a lot of our kids, a lot of our kids did not get that level of attunement um, in their very, very early stages. And it's also important to remember that developmentally and biologically, our bodies are built for these stages at developmentally, chronologically. So babies are built best for attunement. So if we're going back and we need to reclaim the stage of attunement with an older child, it's going to take a little bit more time and be a little bit trickier than it is with the baby. The next stage is body movement and play. These are activities that stimulate what we call the vestibular and proprioceptive systems in the body. So vestibular, the vestibular system is the one that kind of tells where your body is in space and your proprioceptive system tells your body how much pressure your body's experiencing. So if you're getting a hug or someone's touching you, you know, is it a light touch? Is it a deep touch? Your proprioceptive system is going to tell you that. Different types of body and movement play are crawling around, jumping, running, swinging, all of the things that give lots and lots of data to your vestibular and proprioceptive systems. And that just helps build your body awareness. Um, And then building body physical awareness will eventually lead to social awareness and higher levels of play. The third stage is object play. So Lisa, you were talking about blocks, manipulating blocks. Can we, you know, first you can pick up a block and then you can tap two blocks together and then you can stack blocks and then you can make whole castles out of blocks. So manipulating and learning how to manipulate objects and how they'll behave is the next crucial part for play. And it's also a problem solving skill later in life. This also involves constructive play like Legos. The fourth stage is imaginative play. And a lot of times I think when we are looking at play, this is the first, one of the first ways that we define play and we look at it. And a lot of times when we're trying to teach our kids how to play, we skip those first three stages and we jump right to, let's learn how to play with Barbies or horses or little army guys or whatever it is. And we're trying to teach them how to do that skill by showing them how, or I don't know, whatever it looks like, but we've, or it's kind of like trying to teach a newborn how to run without the other building blocks. So imaginative play is exactly what you would imagine it to be, right? It is playing with things using your imagination, whether it be, you know, little toys, whether it be using your whole body, like we were talking about make believe play, Imaginative play can also is also defined in this stage more. It can be individual imaginative play. So it can be, you know, a child sitting down with a bunch of Barbies or army figures, you know, creating a story with them and moving them through a story. This imagination piece is really key to emotional resilience further creativity, and other personal coping skills. So there's so much real life built into play, which is why it's so, so important. And then the very last stage of play, and this is the stage that another stage that we often kind of fret over that our children aren't really there yet is social play. So this 
can include parallel play where two children play similar things, but just next to each other, even though they're not really interacting. It can be cooperative play. So like you were talking about building a Barbie house with your sister. And I was talking about, you know, make believe play with a friend where we're each holding a role in the story. It can also be rough and tumble play, which I know makes a lot of parents nervous, but that's that typically you see it more in boys, but Girls can do it sometimes too, you know, where they're tackling each other, rolling around in the dirt together. Celebratory and ritual play is part of that. So um, storytelling, narrative play, and then transformative, integrative, and creative play. All these different high levels of play where we interact with the people around us. So that's the highest level of play. You know, as you were going through those stages of play, I was thinking about my kids. And um, one of the things they used to love to do is, you know, back in the day when everybody was collecting Beanie Babies, they were a big deal. But eventually they just all got thrown in a box. And um, my kids wanted to play Pet Store. And they would set it up in one of the bedrooms and they would arrange all the Beanie Babies according to different categories, you know, like all the cats and all the dogs and all the dinosaurs or whatever and they'd make these elaborate arrangements and then they had a toy cash register and so there would be shoppers who would come in to look at all the animals the pets and pick them out and buy them and sometimes that could go on like for a couple days and honestly that always made me so happy when they would do that kind of play. I mean that just shows your kids being at that really high level of being able to use their imaginations and cooperate and play together. Um, It's narrative. There's kind of the story running through their play. It's super creative. It's, you know, kind of transformative. They were being other people. So, so many pieces there in that social play level. So you did a good job, mama. Well, the good thing was that my older kids who'd been born into our family who didn't have the trauma and things, they would kind of lead the play, but the younger kids would play too. So I think some of my kids, it helped pull them up into higher levels of play development because they were able to join in with kids who were more developed in their play. I can see where that would be super helpful, especially in my family, because I don't love to play imaginative play. I know I painted this picture of me doing all this make-believe play when I was a kid, but as a mom playing with my kids, it's not, imaginative play is not my go-to play. And it's kind of almost like pulling teeth for me. I would really prefer not to do it. I'm blessed that my mom is super creative and she loves imaginative play. She's a preschool teacher and we have always lived close to her or now they live with us. And so my kids have had the benefit of having this phenomenal play teacher in their lives who gets on the floor and makes the Barbies talk in all the crazy voices and makes stories with the dinosaurs on the floor and all the things that just kind of make my skin crawl. That is a huge gift because, uh, yeah, I'm not great at play either. And I think in a way, that's why I liked that kind of practical imaginative play. Like I didn't want to do um, more fantasy play, but I wanted to be the teacher or like you said, be the doctor and things like that. I didn't really want to pretend, oh, I'm married and this person's my husband and these are my babies. I wanted to do things that were more task oriented, which is kind of true to how I am now as well. 
Yeah, well, the good news, Lisa, is as I was doing this research on play, there are actually play personalities. The freeing thing in this to me was because we hear so much about how important play was, and I felt like such a terrible mom because of this one type of play that I wasn't doing. And it turns out that there are lots of ways to play, not just the stereotypical imaginative play. And so if you're a mom who doesn't love that stereotypical imaginative play, then this list might be really freeing for you too. And it also might help you understand that maybe your kids are playing more than you think they are, but you're just looking for a particular type of play and not seeing it. But they may have just a different play personality than you were looking for. That's so true. Okay, tell us about these different styles of play. Okay. So the first play personality is the joker. This is a person who enjoys nonsense and making others laugh. Um, Sometimes this is the child who's the class clown and they respond well to playful engagement. So which is a, another tool that we use in connected parenting is trying to just keep it light. So anything that makes you laugh and anything you can do with your child so that you can laugh together would be a great way to, engage that type of child in play. Another play personality is kinesthete. And this is kind of like kinesthetic and athlete all rolled into one. So this is the child who is happiest when he is moving. And he may also need to move to learn. So these are kids who are your athletes, love playing sports, whether it's an individual sport or a team sport. They're super high energy kids. Those are the kids you need to have a trampoline for. We have a zip line. We have swings. You know, those are, those are the things you need for those uh, kinesthete kids. You know, and you think about the different play development stages, you know, some of your kids may not be able to handle being on a team, but they may excel in a sport like swimming or martial arts where it's a little bit more individual and you're kind of competing against yourself. Another play personality is the explorer. So this is someone who just thrives on new experiences. So this could be a physical, emotional, or mental experience. So a physical one would be, you know, exploring something new physically, a new type of sport, a new place to visit, trying out new emotions. You know, they might like to get lost in different types of stories or If they're a mental explorer, they may love learning something new or collecting things. You might not see your child playing socially with other kids, but they may just enjoy having a collection of something or curling up in a corner with a good book. And so we have to recognize that these are ways that kids play as well. Another play personality is the competitor. So these are kids who kind of can't do anything just for fun. And if you have a competitor and a joker in your house, they probably will butt heads Uh, A competitor is out to win and can turn anything into a competition. A way to parent this is to kind of gamify tasks that works really well for this type of play personality. I have a friend, an adult friend, who likes to turn everything into play. And so even cleaning her house, she times herself to see if she can beat different things. And she would, she told me that like when she changes the sheet, she'll try to guess which corner the tag is on. And if she does, if she does that corner first, then she wins. And like, that is so not me, but I completely admire it in other people. Well, I mean, there's a ton of these play personalities out there because 
think about all the different games that we have on our phones and the different badges we can win for playing these games. There's no true extrinsic motivation in those. You don't actually get money or anything physical for that badge, but there's something about being on a leaderboard that motivates people and drives them. So it's good to know if that's the way that your child ticks. Yep. Another play personality is the artist or creator. So these are kids who are, you know, really into like arts and crafts. They love making things beautiful. Maybe they create things from scratch, like your Barbie doll houses, or they like to take something that's already been made and make it their own or make it more beautiful. And so providing a steady stream of different materials and different creative outlets for these kids is really, really helpful. They may not be super physical, but their mind is constantly going. And then the last play personality is the storyteller. And so no matter what a storyteller is doing, she uses imagination to kind of increase enjoyment. So these are people who love learning through stories and parables who you might be able to get them to do a chore if you can spin it into a tale or help them pretend that they're a different character doing it. So these are kids who love reading books. They might love writing, drawing. So that's the last form of play. So there's just so many different ways that we can see play and experience play. And so it may be that your child is playing and you just haven't even realized it yet. That's so interesting. As you were talking about that last one, I was reminded of when my oldest girls, who are now 31 and 29, when they were younger, they had friends who they would get together and they would make these elaborate kind of like radio shows. They would use a a cassette recorder. I mean, you know, this was a while ago. And they would create scripts and they would do a whole show of different kinds of things, everything from singing songs to kind of like skits. And um, it was just something they really enjoyed doing. And it was a pretty interesting form of play. That's so fascinating. So can you kind of pick out the play personalities, Lisa, for your various kids? And do you see where their personalities kind of come into the things that they enjoy? Well, I have a lot of kids. So if I tried to figure them all out, it would be kind of tricky. I'm thinking about one of my sons who loved to solve problems and create things with his hands. So when the kids were younger, we had um, a workbench that was low enough for them. And it had all kinds of tools that they were allowed to use. And he would create things. Or one time he created a Lego gumball machine and filled it up with gumballs and then you could kind of pull these things out but you know it's so interesting he's my son who's a mechanical engineer so he played with the gifting that he actually had what he enjoyed doing as a child is what he enjoys doing now but in a in a different way yeah that's really interesting I think the other thing to remember too is we can dip into multiple play personality buckets too. So you don't have to necessarily box yourself in. You may tend to be one more than the other. Maybe you're one in different seasons. Also don't box your kids in to anything. So I think that's important to note. If you had to name your play personality, Lisa, is were there any that kind of jumped out to you as who you kind of resonated with? Well, okay. Tell me which category this would be. In terms of actually playing with my children, what I really like doing with them now is doing things sort of side by side, cooking together. Or when I homeschooled, I enjoyed watching them create something or 
You know, like I'm, I'm not a board game kind of person. So what would that be? Maybe an explorer. I do love like when we would go out for a walk or even the grocery store, I always saw as a great learning opportunity to show them fruits and vegetables and things like that. So maybe I am an explorer, do you think? Yeah. And what kind of fills you up? Like if you have free time, do you kind of tend towards one of these? Like if you didn't have all your adulting responsibilities, you know, what would you be doing? You probably wouldn't be playing practical jokes on everyone in your house. Um, (laughs) No, I would not. Would would you still be an explorer or would you be something else? I don't know. You're a writer, like storyteller. Well, and I do love observing and capturing details. So whether it's reading or whether, like if I were out taking a walk with a child, I would be very into seeing if we could find interesting rocks or, you know, like right now, like chestnuts and things to decorate on the table. And I'm not an artsy person at all, but gathering information, gathering neat things like that. Like at the beach, I always love when the kids find sea glass. I love sea glass. So yeah, maybe I am kind of an explorer. Yeah. I think you sound like an explorer. I think, I think I'm an explorer too, actually. And that's probably why we're friends. I know I'm a little bit of a competitor. (laughs) Um, In my younger days, I was much more of an artist and creator. Like I already have learned how to knit and forgotten. So I don't know, maybe I'll pick it up in my older years, but I used to do a lot of like needlework and sewing and I was like an old woman in my younger years. It reminds me of some of my kids. I like it. Yeah. I don't have time to do any of that anymore. So I've forgotten how to do a lot of it, but years where I didn't have responsibilities and was less busy. Those are the things that I gravitated towards. One thing I found really interesting in particular with my younger boys in terms of play is that they thrive on sports teams. And I think I've thought about it a bit. And I think the reason why is that athletic teams provide the structure for them. They know what to do. And they're learning new things, but everybody kind of has a role on the team. And of course, there is still the joker on the team and the really the competitor and things like that within a team. But the structure of the team and the sport itself gives them some room and some confidence, I think, to play. And they almost um, relax a little bit because they don't have to be trying to figure out all the cues of how to interact socially when they're in a team situation. I think that's super true. I think they're just like with so many other things with our kids, it's that like high nurture, high structure. Um, So in the sports example, they need that structure of the team, but they need to, you know, the nurture of being cheered on and having some flexibility to fail and not feel shame. And just the nurture of you providing that opportunity is high nurture. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. And if they, if a coach actually connects with them, so they feel like the coach cares, they will work really hard, both of them. Yeah. I think that's awesome. So Melissa, what tips do you have for moms for whom play does not come naturally? Here's the hard thing, right? We're the adults and it's our job to kind of lead our kids. And so, but I think this gives us a good tool because sometimes it feels hard to connect with our kids. We're not really sure what they'll accept from us and what is going to work for connecting. And sometimes the things that we stereotypically think of connecting 
you know, are really not going to work for our kids. So understanding play personalities and where our kids might be in the play development cycle gives us some ideas of things that our kids may actually connect with us on. So pretend you have a joker. I have a joker in my house, actually, and it's not my play personality at all. But if I were to try to connect with this child, I know I could do it by doing something silly or playing a practical joke or accepting a practical joke. So I think sometimes we just have to get a little bit outside of our comfort zone and meet our kids where they are in their play personality, in the stage of play that they've developed to. I think with, as in all things in connected parenting, when we go to where our kids are, we do so much better than expecting them to be where we want them to be and where we show up where we want them to be. And then we kind of, kind of drag them along to that spot. Right. It's so much more effective if we actually join them than if we try to uh, kind of manipulate the situation for ourselves. <laughs> I actually have a story about that from just a couple of days ago. Um, my youngest son was grounded and grounding is the hardest thing for him because he's extremely social. So having to stay home is pretty painful, but I see it as a great opportunity to connect. And so once he can get past the feelings of being pretty irritated that this is the consequence he has for his behavior. Then he's willing to connect with me a little bit. And the other day he was grumbling about being grounded. I said, well, you know, I would play a game with you. And he went and got Monopoly. Okay. As a kid, Monopoly was like a nightmare to me, but he got Monopoly and he set up the whole thing. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. There are a billion things I could be doing right now, but I am going to sit on the floor in the family room and play Monopoly. And he really enjoyed it. But the funny thing was, it was pretty novel. And we have a family group Snapchat. So I took a picture of me playing Monopoly with him and I posted it. And my oldest daughter responded right away, way to go, mom, because she knew it was uh, not coming naturally to me. And it wasn't something she'd seen me do a lot. But you know, I have an opportunity now that I don't have toddlers and babies where I can set my work aside and sit down and actually play a game of Monopoly. So I think it went pretty far with my son too. Yeah, I think that's huge. Good job, Mama. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're listening to this on the go or you're a visual learner like Lisa and me, then you can grab a free download for this episode that lists the stages of play development and then also lists out the play personalities with little descriptions. And so you can go back and refer to that. And as a reference, as you're trying to think of creative ways to connect with your kids through play. To grab that download, you can head to theadoptionconnection.com slash 10. A couple of weeks ago, we released a new free video training for all of you called um, 10 Common Myths About Connected Parenting. And we had a lot of fun creating this, coming up with the 10 most common myths that we hear about connected parenting and then debunking them for you. Yeah, so this is a great training if you feel like people make connected parenting look so easy on the videos or it sounds really great in books, but you feel like it isn't working for your family. If you aren't really sure you understand it or you think that it's crazy, if you think any of those things, you really want to grab this video. We talk, like Lisa said, about the 10 most common myths and 
what the truth is behind that. And I really would encourage you, don't give up on connected parenting or even on yourself as a parent and whether or not you can do this before exploring these myths and facts with us. To grab the training, you can go to theadoptionconnection.com slash mythbusters. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.